Now, we haven't done this in a while. We call this culture alert. We find these interesting, unusual things that are happening in the world around us that have something to do with the church, with Christianity. Um, and, and we haven't done it not because there haven't been anything, haven't been things to talk about. There have been too many things to talk about, and it's been really hard to narrow it down to one thing to discuss uh, on the culture alert. But I found this one last week, uh, and I decided to use it this week. It involves the Church of Sweden. Now, the Church of Sweden considers itself to be part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. Um, Back in 1593, it broke from the Roman Catholic Church, and that was backed by the King of Sweden. Uh, At that time, they adopted the Augsburg Confession. They, They claimed to retain or hold fast to the original Christian creeds. They claim they support and believe in the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed. Um, But from 1593 on, the church has always had a strong connection with the government. Now, during the 20th century, the church took a turn towards what we're calling progressive or liberal Christianity. Uh, In 1957, the Church of Sweden Synod rejected the first proposal for the ordination of women. But in 1958, the government deciding that clergy members were actually state employees, the state uh, implied a little coercion and forced the church into accepting women clergy, and the first woman was ordained in 1960. Fast forward to 2009, uh, they voted in a proposal to perform same-sex marriages, and also in 2009, they appointed Eva Brunn as the first openly lesbian bishop in the world. Uh, And her wife also happens to be a clergy in the Church of Sweden. And believe it or not, none of that is a topic of our culture alert this morning. Uh, Here it is. The world's first lesbian bishop calls for the church to remove crosses to install Muslim prayer space. The bishop of Stockholm has proposed the church and her diocese remove all signs of the cross and put down markings showing the direction to Mecca for the benefit of Muslim worshipers. That's the culture alert. You can literally chart the slippery slope slide of this particular church. They started off as solid reformers, as far as we know. They, they adopted their early creeds. They allowed some government involvement, which inevitably led to a move away from the Bible as authoritative. It allowed these cultural trends to dictate or at least influence the direction of the church, which moved it towards syncretism accepting and and combining blending of disparate belief systems and trying to make it seem like it all fits together and it's all okay. Until there's now a church that seems to stand for nothing. They're swayed by the arguments and philosophies of men. They ignore the teachings of Scripture. Um, And even over the years, that ignoring of Scripture maybe seemed passive at the time. But we're just not going to highlight this particular piece of it. But they're now actively working against the church. So that it's no longer the church. And it makes me wonder, this is why it caught my attention. I've read several articles lately about the incredible number of churches that received incredible amounts of PPP money during the COVID pandemic. At what point does our government try to exert influence into our doctrine because we've taken their money? Like telling us that meeting together is not allowed? 
or telling us that singing is not allowed? Is it leading us towards a syncretism of our own? It's interesting, isn't it? And, and syncretism was a concern for Colossae. It's part of why Paul wrote the letter to the church in Colossae, part of the emphasis in this letter. Al has made it clear in the previous two sermons, the introduction to Colossians, our slide title makes it clear that if we were to distill the letter to Colossians down to one big idea, and there are lots of great themes and ideas in the book, but if we were to distill it down into one big idea, it would be the supremacy or the preeminence of Christ. He is above all other so-called gods. He's not joined with, he shouldn't be combined with, he's not aided by, he's not a part of a, a pantheon of gods, but Christ alone is supreme. The question for us moving forward is, are we going to be able to hold on to that? Let's pray. Lord, we understand that we are living in uh, certainly what are interesting, challenging, difficult times for all of us. This is something unlike any of us have seen before. Although it is not new to history, we see these patterns over and over and over throughout the history of the church. There have been assaults and attacks and, and outright persecution and, and killings to wipe out this faith, and yet, Lord, it persists. Yet here we are to celebrate the risen Christ. And I pray as we go through this, uh, uh, this book uh, of Colossians, Lord, that we see Paul's intent, we feel his heart, uh, but more importantly, we, we see the heart of the Father who has inspired and guided Paul in what to write to this church. We pray that it finds some deep place within us that, that resounds with us and that causes us to dig into our faith, to, to dig deeper and to be stronger and to stand fast against whatever waves are moving through our culture. We thank you for underneath this all the great, great love that you have for us, how we are all part of your plan of creation from the very beginning. We are grateful to be here to honor and worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. So after two weeks, we've made it through Paul's uh, introduction and greeting. Uh, these were fairly standard for one of Paul's letters, uh, although he infers in there that he's never been to that church, he's never met them personally, yet he knows them. He's, he's heard of their love for the Lord. He knows Epaphras, he said, and Epaphras was instrumental in helping to establish the church in Colossae. And so there's this bond that connects them, even though they have probably not met. It's a shared faith. It's a shared commitment to, as Paul says, live up to their calling to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And so he starts a letter with this, this great encouragement, and then Paul turns his focus, this is what Al talked about last week, Paul turns his focus to Jesus, starting in verse 12 or so, uh, but then really kicking in in verses 15 to 20, Paul makes a remarkable argument for the supremacy of Christ. He says, Jesus has delivered us from darkness to light. He refers to the kingdom of the Son. It's hard to miss the imagery of Christ the King there. He says that through the Son, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He says Jesus is the image of God. He's not in the image of God, as are we, but he is the very image of God. Paul takes great pains to point that out, because Jesus is not a separate God. He's not another God. He's not a competing God. He is the image of God. He is an integral 
inseparable member of the triune God. Jesus makes the invisible God visible. Now, again, this comes in the context to the, to the church in Colossae, this context of a, a polytheistic, syncretistic culture. They were the home of many gods. They had Greek gods and Roman gods and Phrygian gods and, and probably some local kitchen god or whatever. They had an abundance of deities in Colossae. And Paul points out here that Jesus is different from all of those other gods. He makes it clear that Jesus was hands-on in creation. He was there. He was involved. And not only involved, but in Christ, he says, all things hold together. Then, now, and forever, Christ holds all things together. Even though it looks to us like the world is falling apart. Even though it looks to us as though man is working his little heart out to try to speed that process up. But the fact that we're not completely overwhelmed by evil, the fact that we're not in, it's surrounded by constant flame, is because Jesus still has his hand over creation. He alone is preventing total chaos and collapse. And again, he does this in ways and times that we don't understand. And boy, would we love to critique his work sometimes. But he knows better. But the Son of God is our last and only defense against the onslaught of evil. So early in this letter, highlighting its significance, he brings it up early in the letter, Paul lays out this very powerful argument to the church in Colossae that in this world, in their world then, in our world now, Jesus is supreme. He is absolute, ultimate, unsurpassed, incomparable, predominant, and preeminent. We should pay attention. I mean, it's such a strong statement that I think we can reasonably and safely assume that the issue of Christ's supremacy was important for the church to remember at that time, as it has turned out to be for every church age since then. Satan always tries to undo what God is doing. He always tries to divert us, to lead us away from truth and into falsehood, so we need to be reminded. So, if Jesus is over all thrones and dominions and rulers and authorities, then it goes without saying that Jesus is the head of the body, the church, as well. I mean, it should go without saying, but Paul says it anyway, just to be sure we're all on the same page, just to clarify any misgivings. And since Jesus is the head of the church, then he ought to be supreme in the life of the individual believer as well. Which is what Paul said early on. So, as, so we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. We are to bear fruit in every good work and increase in the knowledge of God. We are to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's all we have to do. So that exhortation, that encouragement comes first. As followers of Christ, here's what we're called to do. Here's how we're called to live. And then to remind us, as, to remind us of why we are called to live thus, that's when we get those verses 15 to 20, all of those things we just went through. The detailed arguments for the awesomeness, not in the 80s kind of use of the word, but in the general awesomeness use of, of Christ. And in today's text, we need, to, we need to go back and see how this flows here. In today's text, we're going to see Paul turns his, turns his focus back to the believers of the church in Colossae. After laying out this argument so far, Paul then gets to chapter 1, starting in verse 21. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So after reminding them of their call to walk worthy and reminding them of why they are to continue to walk worthy, Paul reminds them, and consequently he reminds all of us, that we did not always walk worthy. We were once alienated from God. We were once estranged, separated from God. We were not just separated from God, but Paul says we were hostile towards God. We were hostile towards Jesus. We were the enemy of God. I mean, we killed Jesus. In most countries, that's a universal sign of hostility. We were guilty of evil deeds against the triune God. By nature and by choice, we were anti or against God. And those are the only two choices Paul gives us. You, you, you were either wholeheartedly striving to fully please the Lord, as verse 10 said, you're bearing fruit, you're increasing in the knowledge of God, or we are separated and opposed to and hostile towards God. We are his enemy. There is no middle ground. Now, there's a prevailing belief in our culture that just saying you believe in God or you believe in a God, that's probably good enough. You know, if we have a general undefined belief in a general undefined God, that's likely good enough to get you into heaven. You know, if that's a real thing. And just to be sure, I believe in God, but just to be sure, the Buddha was a pretty righteous dude also. I mean, let's not rule out karma and reincarnation. They have some interesting thoughts there. That, that belief system goes way back. They can't be all wrong. You know, just, just to be safe, let's just feast at the deity smorgasbord so all of our bases are covered. It turns out that that is not saving faith. That is not even faith. That's spiritual bingo. Just trying to make sure you have all the spots covered. I mean, the whole point of Paul's Christ is supreme speech, one of the points of this whole letter to the church is to disabuse us of this notion that all religion is the same, that all spirituality is the same. It is not. I recently had an opportunity to uh, have a discussion with some folks. It started off something totally unrelated, you know, life, weather, I don't know, whatever. And then it came up in the course of the discussion that I was a pastor at a, at a local church here in town. And in the course of the talk, after that, uh, the comment was made, um, that's really nice, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, that's good for you. Um, and, and you've probably come to realize that all religions are good and helpful and have so many things in common. And I said, Yes. There is a lot of commonality among these various belief systems and world religions. But when you really dig into them, what becomes more important are the differences. I mean, different faith systems may share a common language. We talk about holy scriptures, and we talk about prophets, and we talk about God and Jesus. But it turns out we mean different things by them. So definitions are pretty key 
in trying to understand or unlock different belief systems. So even though they may sound alike, they're leading us in totally different directions. They can't all be the same. If I give you two different maps that lead you in two different places, you can't say it's the same map. And I could tell by the look on their faces that they just, they'd never heard that before. They'd never considered it before. And whether that does any good or not, I don't know. But my job was done. They'd never thought about the significance of how these are all different. And I, and I think that's why Paul just provided for us this remarkable description of Jesus. He has clearly defined for us this Jesus that he's talking about. The Jesus he has committed to. The Jesus we ought to commit to. Because there is no in-between. We are for Jesus or we are against Jesus. Paul doesn't give us another option. We're either separated, uncommitted, alienated, and hostile towards God, as we all were at some point, or we have committed, we've been reconciled, we've been saved through the sacrifice of Jesus' life and death. That's it. So as Paul is writing to the church in in Colossae, he says, you have been, and he means we, we have been reconciled. We have been reunited. We are no longer hostile, but now we're holy. We were reproachful, and now we're above reproach. We have been and will remain reconciled with God. This is remarkably good news for us. We've gone from an enemy of God to a child of God. And we can stay forever united, forever reconciled with our Creator. Did you catch this part the first time through? If. That's a big if. I'll confess, I made it bigger than it actually (laughs) appeared in the text. We can stay forever reunited. We can stay reconciled with our Creator if we continue in the faith. If we remain stable, if we remain steadfast in our walk, if we don't shift away from the hope of the gospel that you've heard, if we just keep on keeping on. Because it turns out that this is a, that the true sign of true conversion, real reconciliation is a long obedience in the same direction. It's being stable. It's being steadfast. It's being faithful to the commitment that we've made to Christ our Lord. It's not following after some popular trend of the day, false teaching, decoding the Bible claptrap, or some spiritual hyper-emotional feel-goodism dressed up in holy garb. I had to write that down. Being spiritual, being born again, does not mean we're, we're, we're sending money to people on TV to buy up tear-soaked hakeys from a big-haired, cap-toothed false prophet. So we feel good, you know, we feel super spiritual about our faith. Real reconciliation is living it every day. Actually seeking to follow Christ in issues big and small. And reconciliation, as it turns out, is not a weepy, one-time, confessional, magic prayer asking Jesus into our hearts. And then three days later, or three months later, or three years later, acting like it never happened. 
right back to living the way we've always lived. The emotion, the emotions is worn off. Nothing's really changed. That is not real repentance, and that's not real reconciliation. That's the if Paul is talking about. True faith, lasting faith, reconciling faith is life-changing. Not for a period of time, but until the day you die or Jesus calls you home or shows up first. It's a consistent walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's living out the hope of the gospel. Which is exactly why what Paul commends them for and challenges them to do. And which Paul has done with his life. He's living out the hope of the gospel. Even while enduring fairly difficult and challenging consequences. So Paul is laying this, this, this broad foundation of faith. I think he intends it to be like a, like a big brotherly hug. I, I don't know you all personally yet. I probably haven't met many of you. I may never meet many of you. But we have a shared faith. We have, we have a, a shared commitment. We're all in this together. We're all living faith together. Let's remain faithful together. And then he reminds them of his commitment to the gospel. He reminds them of his commitment to Jesus. And he reminds them of his standing, his, his, his mission. Even though he's still coming under attack from all sides. Paul continues, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is literally a sermon per sentence, but we're not going to take that kind of time this morning. I really found this to be an interesting phrase going through this. It, it, it's an interesting phrase for Paul to use. Not the first part. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. We've all heard that from Paul before. We've been through several of his letters now. This is not new for us. Uh, he, he has talked about his suffering and his hardship. Uh, at one point he said, I've learned to be content in my circumstances. So this is nothing new for Paul to say, I rejoice in my sufferings. It still seems weird, but it's not new. But then he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, the church. This is kind of unusual. I, I, I have confessed to you before that there is a period of time where, where I was really bothered by the seeming arrogance of Paul. This is one of the reasons this is one of the verses that gave me pause. Paul acknowledges that his obedience to the gospel has resulted in, in, in sufferings of various kinds. That's been well documented. But then he says, In my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Paul is filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings, Christ's afflictions. I mean, this sounds like arrogance on steroids. And at first read, one might get the impression, if one, you know, was me, one might get the impression that Paul is implying that Christ's work on the cross, while helpful, beneficial, really nice, it was somehow not completely sufficient. He left some stuff undone. There were, there were a few things unfinished. That Jesus' death, the implications, the effects of his death, were somehow lacking in their redeeming or reconciling effects. So Paul, blessed apostle that he is, Paul is having to fill in the gaps. 
to make up for Christ's deficiencies. One could read that into this text. Is that what Paul is saying? Is Paul making up for what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? And the short answer is, well, no. Obviously, that's not what Paul is saying. In fact, that understanding that Paul is having to to fill in, that Jesus needs Paul's help, that goes against the whole idea of this letter. I mean, Christ is only supreme if his sacrifice was sufficiently completed. Christ can't be supreme except for this, you know, this one small area. He needed Paul's assist, little alley-oop. Christ is either the fullness of God or he is not. He reconciled all things to himself or he didn't. So Paul is not saying that it was up to Paul to fill in these gaps because there are no gaps in Jesus' work on the cross. He said, it is finished. So how should we understand this then? It is critical here for us to understand and consider the whole context because just that section of verse alone can be problematic. Context makes it clearer. You still have to work through it a bit, but it's clearer. What makes more sense in full context is that Paul is not suffering to fill in any gaps for the sake of Christ, but Paul is suffering for the sake of Christ's body, the church, which is what he actually says there. Now, Paul's not been shy about pointing out how he has suffered for the gospel and how he expects the church to suffer as a result of following Christ also. He's been very clear that if our goal is Christ-likeness, well, Jesus suffered and died. We ought to reasonably expect, as emulators, as followers of Christ, that we should suffer as well, perhaps even die for the cause, which is why Paul rejoices in his sufferings for Christ. He, he, he is being identified with the risen Savior. Paul's suffering for the cause of Christ in his church is confirmation that Jesus is a that Paul is a Jesus follower. You remember in Matthew 16, Jesus himself said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's what Paul is teaching here. He's not talking about suffering or even dying in the place of Jesus, but Paul is talking about suffering and dying in response to and for the cause of Jesus. As many Christ followers have done and continue to do around the world. We have been somewhat immune from that here in the U.S. But I suspect that suffering for the cause of Christ is coming our way. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. So Paul is willing to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel, specifically for the sake of the church, to continue the work that Jesus started. Christ suffered in death to save the church. Paul is suffering in life to help keep the church moving. It's to that end. It's for that purpose. Paul says he became a minister. According to the stewardship, he said, that was given to him from God. And we know the story. Paul was commissioned in in a fairly unique manner. It didn't leave much doubt. And in his commission, his mission was to make the word of God fully known. And it's the fully known part that Paul kind of refers to here as the mystery, the mystery that's been hidden for ages and generations, but now it's been revealed to the saints. We'll talk about the mystery in a minute, but first let's not overlook the fact that Paul's mission, as he lays it out here, was really kind of a twofold mission. And the first part seems to be that Paul was commissioned to suffer. Stonings, beatings, left for deadings, shipwrecks, imprisonments. 
That was just part and parcel of Paul's mission. That was part of God's game plan for Paul. It was a tough assignment. And yet Paul understood it. He, he embraced it. He was so committed to the second part of the mission, the, the teaching, the mystery, that he was willing to endure the suffering to get to that part. More than enduring, he, he found contentment in it. I've learned to be content. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. He willingly subjected himself to suffering for the sake of these people he's likely never met. And as far as we know, probably never did meet. All to follow the example of the Savior. So you can follow the dots here. If, if, if Paul loves Jesus, then Paul had to love the church. He had to. That was his mission. There was no separation for Paul between Jesus and his church. If Paul was willing to die for Jesus, then Paul had to be willing to die for the church. This is such an overlooked, ignored, and abused concept today, especially among some professing believers. I think we have a, a pandemic of Jesus, yes, church, no theology. And it tends to develop for a couple of reasons. Uh, I'm just going to briefly touch on two of them. The first one is spiritual individualism, where, where we prioritize our personal relationship with Christ and we, we forget or ignore um, the role or the value of the church altogether. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. That's all I need. And sometimes, for some people, what that means is I really don't want anyone telling me what to do judging me or holding me accountable. You hear it sometimes in terms of, I can worship on the golf course. I worship best with a fly rod in my hand. I can worship with Greg Laurie on the TV in my living room. Or, or someone, someone might say, I love Jesus, I, I read my Bible, probably more than those other so-called Christians. I'm good on my own. And we develop a, a spiritual pride. We become so spiritual that we can't stand our other spiritual brothers and sisters. And then we've missed the whole point of salvation. It might also mean that there's been some real hurt that's been caused by a church or a church member. And frankly, that's more common than it ought to be. But we're all wretches saved by grace we all offend we all do stupid things and say stupid things but that should not cause us to to incorrectly errantly write off the entire bride of christ we've, we've been hurt and we wounded and wounded until we pull away rather than forgive and seek reconciliation we end the relationship with the church which makes me think what if god treated us that way if we offended God and he just walked away from us? Remember, Jesus didn't need the church either, but he died for it. I think another reason people claim their dislike of the church is the institutional nature of the church. You've all heard this, right? I don't mind religion. It's organized religion that I have a problem with because somehow disorganized religion would be much, much better. It's all about power and money. Really, it's all about money, money, money. Dear friends, money. First money, 
chapter money, verse money says, give us your money. I mean, you know, religion is fine. But it's all about power and money. And, and I grant you, there are denominations that go too far. You know, if you don't belong to this church, you're not saved. If you haven't been baptized in this church, you're probably not saved. If you don't participate in this sacrament or this event, you're probably not saved. If you're not tithing 10%, actually 12% is holier, but if you're not tithing 10%, you're probably not saved. There, there, are, there are churches that, that build monuments to the leaders. You know, a couple years back, I remember hearing a story about this giant church in Dallas. And it was huge. It was multi-million dollars. I don't remember how much money. Multi-million dollars. And the centerpiece was this enormous fountain out in front. And it had like that, you know, that Las Vegas dancing fountain thing where there's stuff going everywhere. It had this giant fountain that's shooting water and a colorful light show. And there were hymns playing over the cascading waterfall. That church took several million dollars in PPP funds. This is just my opinion. I find that shameful. That is not a good look for the Church of Christ. There are some good reasons to avoid some churches. And whichever reason we use, whatever our our particular favorite is, as proclaimed followers of Jesus Christ, when we see bad examples of Christianity, when we see bad examples of other Christians, it ought to inspire or encourage us to be better examples of Christ, not write them all off. We know people are watching us. How can we be better than example X or Y? But oftentimes these reasons that people have, they're they're just excuses. It it covers up the fact that it's easier to throw out the baby with the bathwater and dismiss all churches than it is to be discerning and deliberate in finding a good church. A church that places a high value on the word of God. A church that worships together, not just emotes together. And it ignores the fact that we are called to fellowship with the saints. Now, there are a lot of reasons that people have, even Christians, for staying away from the church. I just don't think that any of them are good reasons. I don't think they're scripturally justifiable reasons. If you have a good argument that I'm missing here, please feel free to to clue me in afterwards. I don't see it. Jesus himself said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. The book of Acts begins with the birth of the church. Most of the books of the New Testament were letters written to the church. The book of Revelation, which we may or may not be preaching next year, it is this cataclysmic conclusion to the canonical scriptures. And what does it depict? Jesus' fairly dramatic return for his bride, the church. This is what history is building towards. This is the plan that God has established. If we as professing followers of Jesus Christ believe that the church, or at least our role in it, is optional at best, or entirely unnecessary at worst, I think we need to be very careful about our ongoing spiritual status. We're being led astray. We are acting in a way that is contrary to Scripture. We are acting against God's plan for human history. It is not insignificant that Paul willingly, joyfully suffered for the church. And Paul was commissioned by Jesus himself for this very purpose. How dare we think we don't need the church? 
that we're better than or, or different than all of those other people. I can pretty much guarantee you, and I don't even know all of you, I can pretty much guarantee you that you are not a better Jesus follower than was Paul. And Paul's mission was to the church. Paul's goal in life, as, the, as given to him by Jesus himself, was to suffer for the cause of Christ and to reveal the mystery to the church. I'm going to step down off that particular soapbox and continue. So what is this mystery that Paul was to reveal? Well, there are actually a couple of layers to the mystery, but let's just talk about the word itself first. Again, Colossae was, was a city awash in strange religions and cults and occultic practices. They would have been fully aware of the idea, the word of mystery. And more often than not, for them, it meant some kind of initiation into a secret religion, a, a, a spiritual cult. So Paul used a word that they knew, this mystery word, but he turned it on its head because he describes the mystery for them. It was hidden for a period of time. It was hidden over generations. But now we know it. And here are a few things that Paul shares with us. He gives us a couple things to consider. Number one is the mystery has now been revealed to the saints, the church. And who are these saints? Well, it's the people in the church. It's those who, who believe that Jesus was who he said he was, that believed Jesus was both God and man, that he, he suffered and died and, and exited the tomb on the third day. In short, the mystery has been revealed to the active church, those followers of Christ. But that doesn't really define it for us. Another part of the mystery that Paul talks about is the church now includes the Gentiles. While God worked almost exclusively in and through the nation of Israel for generations prior, Christ has opened the door for the mystery to be made available to every non-Jew. That's a Gentile. Everybody that's not a Jew, you're all welcome. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Same thing Paul talked about in Ephesians we saw. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the mystery is now knowable to the church. The church now includes all believers. It doesn't matter race, creed, ethnic, background, location. It doesn't matter. And these are components of the mystery, but not quite the full picture. All of this kind of builds up to or helps define the real mystery, which is Christ in you. For generations and ages, the way to God was through essentially Judaism. It was through temple worship. It was through animal sacrifice. It was through observance of the law. But then Jesus came. He was the fulfillment of all the prophets and all the law. He was the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He negated the requirement for the blood sacrifice of animals. Jesus died in our place to allow us to reconcile with God the Father. God gave us the Holy Spirit to live in us so that Christ is literally in us. To teach us, to correct us, to, to help us become more Christ-like. Jesus was and is an equal opportunity sacrifice. He died for everybody. For all people everywhere, Jew and Gentile. And because Jesus was sacrificed for all mankind, then we all have the opportunity to put our trust and our faith in him. And Paul says when we do that, we find hope. Not just good feelings, you know, hope to get through Wednesday, hope to get through this trial, hope to get through this class, hope to get through this illness, hope to get through this present darkness, but we are promised and given the hope of glory. And glory here is referring to eternal life. Now, we still have to get through Wednesday. 
We still have to get through illness and pain and death, and we still struggle with this particular class or this life or this present darkness. But we have the hope of glory. The promise that better days are ahead. That a brighter future awaits. That the bride of Christ will be reunited with the Son of God in the kingdom of God, and we will enjoy his reign and worship him forever. Jesus has invited the world to join him in the new heavens and the, the new earth, to be part of this collective bride. Does that include you? Have you put your faith, your trust, your life in the hands of the supreme Jesus? Do you have that hope of eternal life? If you can't say an unequivocal and resounding yes, please come see me in just a few minutes, not just yet but sometime later this morning or throughout the week, or if you have questions, please come talk to me. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, stand amazed at the message that we find in your word. Lord, we, we, we are amazed at the plan that you had in place from before you spoke it, the world into creation until the very end of time, Lord. You have, you have this plan in place, and it's all working according to your plan. We're not that bright. We don't get most of it. 